Welcome everyone to Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind, the podcast that aims to demystify and un- unravel some of the mysteries of medical oncology for trainees and uh, experienced doctors and anyone with an interest. And Josh, I know at the end of our last episode, we talked about interviewing a good friend of ours, Andrew, but then we had a brainwave and realized that it was actually Breast Cancer Awareness Month. And we have an absolutely fantastic guest who is in high demand, so I'm thrilled that we could snag a few hours of her time. She's done about five talks around Australia for the past week. Um, But uh, we have Dr. Belinda Yeo, who is uh, a senior medical oncologist at the Austin Hospital and Olivia Newton-John Cancer Research Institute in Melbourne. She is trained in Sydney uh, and uh, spent some time at the Royal Marsden Hospital in London and completed a master's degree at the University of London and the Institute of Cancer research. Uh, She's also heavily involved in research at the VCCC and is, as I intimated just before, uh, thoroughly involved in education and uh, flies around the country, nay the world, giving talks and imparting her wisdom on breast cancer. So we're absolutely thrilled, Belinda, to have you. Thank you so much. That's a very generous introduction. It's not that sexy, I'm sure, but thanks, Michael. Thanks, Josh, for having me. (laughs) And so we thought that you know, we spend hours and we waste hours of people's time rabbiting on about one or two uh, topics a day. But today we're going to do something different. It's basically going to be a a pearls session, a um, uh, picking of the brain of a, of a very experienced oncologist who's seen it all and done it all. Um, and so I guess, Belinda, we just wanted to ask you about your time as a clinical research fellow at the Marsden. Uh, it's getting to this to the uh, the current climate, I guess, is that people need to start looking for research opportunities and the Marsden always comes up um, as a, as a very prestigious place. But um, what was the what was the train of events, I guess, that caused you to to uh, pursue some research at the Marsden? Well, I guess like a lot of things, it's a bit of luck. Um, and a lot of my career has been a bit of luck. So um, I knew I was very keen to travel and go overseas and that might seem a bit mute now but um and I wanted to go somewhere where I could get hopefully really good at just one thing I didn't really know what that one thing would be though I have to be frank so I looked at a few fellow jobs but like a lot of fellow jobs you know it's a lot about who introduces you and um you know at at that time I went over and you know met a few people and it it just had a it had a great vibe it really felt as though I mean obviously there's some extremely well experienced you know, every paper you read, you know, the first or second author is um, someone who you are meeting, which is very inspiring. I guess the other thing is from a medical system point of view, the NHS felt um, like a similar model that I would be working in when I came back to Australia. So, um, yes, look, I have to be fair to you, though. Uh, Look, mostly a lot of luck, you know, having a cup of tea with someone and, you know, rolling on from there. I doubt you can just fall into the fall into a fellowship at the Marsden, though. Well, I I think you're right. You do have to put in a bit of work. I mean, time is one thing. You've got to really plan well ahead and you might think you're going to go in 12 months and it takes a bit longer. Um, And I think you you also, I think talking to people who have, you know, been to some of these places, and it doesn't have to be overseas, but certainly that was, I mean, you know, London is also a great attraction. The city where these places are is often um, part of the charm. So um, talking to people who have been before, and I guess... You know, I mean, I was there for about four and a half years and I think the one thing, you know, I do say to our trainees going over is it does take you a little while for them to get to know you. You know, I'd been in 
kind of Sydney, you know, kind of done the training route as many of you have. And a lot of people know you and, you know, might think you're not too bad. But when you go to a new place, no one has a clue. You know, you might have a CV that looks okay. I don't think mine was flash at all. But um, so it does take a little while just for people to trust you and, and, and you to get to know who's who. And I think that's why, especially, you know, I think I'm not sure when I went how long I thought I'd stay. I certainly didn't think I'd stay four and a half years. Um, but uh, it was actually very hard to come home after all that. So, um, yeah, and I had a great time. So I might ask the next question because this is kind of our origin section of all our interviews where we like to pick your brain of your mo- motivation. The question I have, so, you know, you, you did your, your BPT or for those, the basic physician training, and then you chose oncology. What, before you decided to head down the research route, go to Mars and, you know, kind of explore that side of, I guess, your career, what made you choose oncology? What was the, I guess, what was the kindling to your passion? So I think um, when I left school, I actually was turned away from medicine a little bit. I was from a medical family and I thought maybe journalism would be a good gig. And so I did an arts degree, which was a lot of fun, Um, didn't get me a job and certainly probably taught me that I'd be a terrible journalist. And so kind of medicine was like, you know, in some ways, something that I was a bit familiar with. Um, And so that's kind of how I ended up doing medicine in fact it's kind of a funny story when I did the GAMSAT which I think of many people still said I actually got somebody else's score um so when I got the result I did (laughs) I did really badly and I was like right that's it I'm clearly not meant to be a doctor and then about you know I don't know several months later they wrote back and said oh no sorry we gave you someone else's mark would you like to come back for an interview (laughs) so anyway but um moving quite along from there I guess um it was very obvious I would not do surgery. I was I, I faint in theatre. I'd faint before the patient even came into the room. So um, I wasn't really going down that path. I enjoyed problem solving um, and I enjoyed a kind of a multidisciplinary approach. So I enjoy, you know, having interaction with lots of different specialties. And oncology seemed like that. And at the time, and this probably sounds weird because, you know, all of the specialty programs have amazing research opportunities, but oncology really did seem to be the poster child back when I was doing BPT. So, um, and I even say this now, you know, oftentimes, I mean, I think if you want to fix a lot of problems, oncology may not be the thing to do, but um, I think there's a lot you can do even when you can't perhaps, you know, fix the cancer. And that's what I find really rewarding. And uh, still, you know, I mean, obviously I still have a lot to learn. So, that was that was kind of my path, if that makes sense. You yeah, know that that's actually fantastic, and thank you for sharing. I think I just for our trainees, it's really great to put into context because when you're at the start of your journey, or even before you start your journey, everything seems really daunting, and you hear the ongoing theme of it was a bit of luck. And I think the reality is most of medicine and where you end up is also a bit of luck, as opposed to just you know you push headfirst into whatever you want and you're going to get there. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, also finding, working out the, you know, you work so hard as a registrar and, you know, working out the patients that you enjoy seeing, I think was something that was kind of obvious to me. Um, So, you know, I didn't get a lot of kick out of finding a heart murmur or, (laughs) you know, that kind of thing. So, um, and still don't. But, um, yeah, that, that I mean, I do think you need to enjoy, enjoy, you know, particularly if you want to be a clinician, uh, you know, the patients that you'd be looking after and their families. 
You mentioned that, uh, and it's something that we've said as well, but it's very true that uh, oncology is not the best um, specialty if you want to fix things. But as far as oncological subspecialties go, breast cancer is probably where you get to do the most fixing. So where where did um, where did this uh, passion and focus for breast cancer come in? Because so, you mentioned when you went to the Royal Marsden, you weren't sure. Yeah, so that's that. You know what? That is that is the job that got handed to me. So I, I mean, at the time, I you know, got a job in Toronto, which was going to be a bit of a kind of pan-cancer phase one job. And the Marsden job was a breast job. And I remember leaving thinking, you know, having met all these famous people and, you know, feeling extremely small and thinking, oh, you know, do I really want to see predominantly, you know, women uh, and often very well women, you know, for the rest of my life. And it sounds a bit weird, but uh, actually it's a real privilege. Um, I I really enjoy it. And, um, and you know, you, you obviously look after a lot of, men in that process you know as family members and friends and we do obviously have men with breast cancer um but um that was the job that i got so you know there you go and um you know i do remember at the other end of you know that four and a half years you know even you know my mentors there saying you know you don't have to do breast cancer now belinda you can go and do something else and i thought are you kidding (laughs) i've just spent all this time you know trying to trying to learn from you guys so um yeah yeah and so you, you finished your time at the Marsden and I am going to assume you got a fair bit of research experience, you know, learned from the best. You then ended up back in Australia and you chose, well, I don't know if you chose, but you ended up in Melbourne um, working at the Olivia Newton-John Centre and you know, the prestigious Austin Hospital. Was it kind of a per chance you, you got the job and you ended up in a different state? Was it choice? How did that sort of land? Well, I think like, um, you know, all advanced trainees and fellows know, there's a lot of anxiety when you get towards the end and think, how am I going to get a job? And, um, you know, you think, have I got to wait? Where will I work? And at the time, in fact, I was almost setting myself up to stay in London. I was pretty happy Mm. there. Um, And there really wasn't a lot available in Brest. And, of course, you know, jobs come up and, you know, I kept, you know, getting advice, come home and do something else. Oh, and you can do a bit of breast on the side. But I really decided that, you know, this is what I wanted to do. And this job came up that had, you know, this, I guess, blend of being able to work in a, you know, big public hospital, being able to do some research um, and in a city that, you know, I really didn't know very well, um, uh, but came back and visited a few times and thought, you know, um, this, I'll give it a grow. And uh, of course, six and a half years later, we're very much settled here. Yeah. Yeah, fair enough. No, you know, Melbourne's Melbourne's not a bad place to settle, I must say. No. As far as places go. That's right. It's a pretty good city. Yeah. So, if it uh, I think that Josh, unless you have any other burning questions for uh Belinda as a as a uh, potential pathway of a career pathway that people might want to imitate. Um we might just start picking your brains Belinda if it's all right about uh, breast cancer itself. Go for it. Um which which I mean, breast cancer has always been an area where there is a lot of research and a lot of, you know, drug development. And um, we've, we've said it before, a ton of really, really effective treatments, especially by the standards of, or if you compare it to things like lung cancer and what have you. Um, But I guess both now and in your career, were there any particular, um, avenues not not necessarily individual treatments but sort of treatment modalities even that really got you excited and made you think oh this is really going to change the game 
Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a hard one to answer because I think, um, you know, uh, one of the problems of breast cancer, if you like, um, it's a good problem to have. But as you mentioned, most people are cured from this disease. We find it early. You know, most people have small cancers that we treat and many, I'm sure we overtreat. And so it's this balance between really trying to ideally find those patients who have, you know, have something to gain from what we have to offer them. And that's the nuance of breast cancer that I think is really tough. You know, the patient who presents with very advanced disease or, you know, high grade, triple negative, lots of nodes, you know, it's very kind of clear what pathway they have. But, um, you know, as, as I'm sure you guys have experienced, that nuanced discussion between, you know, is chemotherapy going to benefit you here? How intensive do we make the endocrine therapy? And, you know, over the course of, you know, the last 10 years, we can see that these are still questions. You know, when I was training, everyone was like, who do you give chemo to? We're still asking that question, you know, 15 years later. Um and I think, you know, now we have more intensive endocrine therapy, which is good, but it's tough. And these are treatments we give for many years. Obviously, in the HER2 positive space, I mean, we've had fantastic drugs. We changed the face of HER2 positive breast cancer. And that continues just, you know, year on year. And, of course, the, the ADCs in that space and perhaps actually across all of metastatic breast cancer and perhaps even into the early setting are an exciting space. Actually, not just for breast cancer, but, you know, my colleagues tell me, you know, these are changing the face of other cancers as well. So... You know, I think it's interesting that, you know, I always think of, you know, we, we keep reminding people breast cancer is not one disease, it's three, four, ten, whatever you like. And we're almost coming back to saying, oh, no, maybe everyone will benefit from this one drug. So, um, yeah, immunotherapy, I think, is a real frustration for breast cancer at the moment. You know, I think we're still, I feel we're a long way behind um, our colleagues in going able to work out who benefits. And my hunch is that, you know, if we're going to get, immunotherapy at least in Australia in a funded sense that we can use it routinely it may in fact be in the early setting and that will be the first time that I can remember for a long time where a drug you know perhaps is used in the early setting before it's used in the metastatic setting routinely I might be wrong about that you can play this back to me later and see <laughs> yeah so they're just a couple of uh initial thoughts I had Michael yeah and and I, I wanted to focus on on one of the things that you said is that nuance that gray um you know, a lot of the studies um, that I'm familiar with, they have very obviously concrete uh, inclusion criteria for, you know, thinking about monarchy and abemocyclib in the adjuvant setting, which I know we've gone through recently. Um, what is your thought when you're confronted with a more equivocal patient? Do you have, uh, obviously, you know, there's, there's patient factors, patient preference, and it's a discussion. But do you have a, a, a focus or a, a thought process that you go through even before the patient comes in where you, you sort of say, what am I going to recommend, assuming that the patient is sort of open for everything? Yes, I do. I do. I'm not sure I follow this every time, but I do. I mean, I think it is always good before you meet the patient to have a sense of what, you know, you would recommend. And of course, our MDMs help us a lot there. So it's not one decision. Um the other thing I do, sometimes it is not clear and um, and many times the answer is not clear as is in all of medicine. And I usually go back to that, you know, well, if this was my sister, my mum or me, what would I do? And oftentimes if you're really on the fence, um, that really helps actually, gives you a lot of clarity. Then, of course, you've got to meet the patient because um, you can be right on the fence and the patient walks in and it's abundantly clear what the answer to that would be. And that's what's so beautiful about um, meeting the patient. So oftentimes, you know, when the, you know, registrar comes in and says, I'm just about to see this patient and, you know, which is fine. And I think oftentimes we, you know, we need that feedback, but I usually say, well, go back and meet them and then come back. And I'm sure you'll know the answer. And that's how I work as well. Um, I mean, our patients give us, you know, a lot of information 
you know, patients are pretty well versed in these therapies. I mean, look, chemotherapy absolutely still gets a very bad rap and, um, you know, despite making it hopefully a bit more tolerable, um, it still is toxic. But um, I think people's experience of that either with family or friends or what they've read um, is often something that you may be able to, you know, change their minds as such in that consultation or if not in another one. So, but that's kind of how I think. Um, so, you know, have a preconceived idea of where you're heading. Um, you've also got to be willing to manoeuvre that. And sometimes if, you know, it might take you several visits, you might see someone and think, look, you know what, they're borderline. I really do want to get an echo. I, you know, I, I, it's okay. I don't need to make this decision right now. Um, so, but, you know, MDMs have revolutionised this as well. I think they're a really good avenue to be able to hear different opinions and often get surprised how, you know, we often don't agree. And I say to the patient, look, if there's a, you saw a hundred oncologists around Melbourne, you know, 70% would say this and the patient kind of looks at it and says, how come you don't all agree? But usually then I tell them, I say, well, look, if we don't all agree, it probably means that there's not a clear answer and maybe the benefit of having one versus the other is, um, you know, is marginal. And I, I do think sharing that kind of uncertainty with the patient sometimes is really important um, because it helps, I think it helps with decision-making. Yeah, that's so true, um, Belinda. Th thank you for that. And I, I, I picked up on one point and it, it actually is a good reflection. So when you say sometimes the people have not disagreements, but people have different opinions of which is the best treatment, there's no clear pathway to kind of manage and you, you highlighted sort of bringing the person back for sort of second and third times. What's your, let's say you've hypothetically got someone with an aggressive triple negative breast cancer where chemotherapy is definitely the, the right path and they themselves are exclusively like very reluctant. There's also sort of a lot of cultural pressures as well with certain ethnicities who don't want um, chemotherapy, as you said, the bad rap. How's your, what's your approach to, I guess, trying to convince some of these very, very young women who are very apprehensive for good reason to kind of go ahead with, I guess, complex treatments that take up months of their lives, if not longer, have potential, you know, long-term complications like peripheral neuropathy. Yeah, so, um, you know, I, I think information is power. You know, mm -hmm. making a good, inf you know, we don't always make the best decisions uh, based just on information, but if I don't give good information that is you know, in the mode that the patient's going to understand, then I haven't done my job. And I also think giving my opinion is important. You know, I never like to say to the patient, this is totally up to you, I'm not sure. So I always give them my hunch, if you like. And I guess the example you gave in triple negative with, you know, a young person, you know, certainly we know that there's benefit of chemotherapy. I think one thing we have up our sleeve in that example specifically, and I'll use it, is that, you know, sometimes the fact that you can give the cancer treatment before their surgery in that neoadjuvant setting gives people the knowledge of whether this is working. I think adjuvant therapy is so hard. You know, patient says, how do you know it's working? I don't, it's just the test of time. So, you know, that's something where, you know, maybe we've got that extra little bit of um, persuasiveness to be able to say, look, try this and, you know, let's see how we go. Because the reality is the vast majority of these actually do respond. I think you've also got to work out what, what are their biases towards, you know, against this. And some of them will be very reasonable, you know, you know, a patient who says to me, look, you know, my mum had triple knee breast cancer and she died. And, you know, that's that's a very difficult thing to change someone's mind. And sometimes the answer for them is not to have it. But I, I guess, um, you know, working out who else is, you know, around them, who's their support network? Are they in the room? I mean, in COVID, you know, we haven't met anyone in the room. So, you know, hopefully, you know, there's not many more times or eras where we need to do that. Um, and you know, I guess really listening, using, you know, your team, like the surgeons using them and your breast care nurses and 
Um, you know, and sometimes the decision is not going to be your recommendation. I mean, it's not often, but we all have seen patients who say, you know, what, not, not, not for me. And I think you have to respect that. So, um, but I do try my very hardest and I don't always get that right, but you try and just share your sense of expectation of what the therapy would be. Maybe there's some misconceptions about, you know, how they're going to be. They're not going to be in bed every day. They're not going to end up in hospital almost certainly, you know, so, um, and occasionally that gets patients over the line. Yeah, no, that's very true. And I think having having that support network, especially in these situations, is fundamentally important. And medicine has truly realised that not having family or, you know, those people makes any kind of treatment really challenging. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess when you're when you're dealing with a patient we've we've talked a lot about the early breast cancer setting first meeting them and and that sort of stuff but do you also have uh, an approach and I know that we we see these um these uh, sort of patients pretty pretty much every day especially when you're on wards but do you have sort of an approach of of when things aren't going how we would want so in the advanced setting um I'm thinking of one recent mutual patient, Belinda, I'm sure you can think who, um, where, where things really aren't going well and, you know, you, you think, you, you, at least I have this conception that we have lines and lines and lines of therapy. We have lots of things that we can reach, reach for, but sometimes circumstances conspire that those things are taken off the table. Do you have, uh, I guess, a, a, a thought process of balancing risk versus benefit, toxicity, and, and I guess against a diminishing benefit, the more advanced and heavily pretreated a patient is? Yeah, yeah. And these are difficult in every part of oncology. And breast cancer, you know, we are privileged by, you know, having that comment, oh, there are many lines here. Uh, for some patients, there aren't many lines at all. And I think, um, look, it is it does help to know your patient really well. And I know in the public setting, we often work as a team. Um, certainly we do where at the Austin and so you know the patient gets to know a whole lot of doctors sometimes that's great um, other times it's a real frustration for them but um, you know if this is a patient for example who's been on a CDK46 inhibitor done you know what we'd argue is really well they might have been on therapy for three years and then they move on to you know and very quickly they're on chemo and they kind of move through maybe two or three lines of chemo after that over a 12-month period it's a really frustrating thing, you know, for the patient. But, um, you know, also what you're balancing in that is are they are they sick from the cancer, you know, because oftentimes in metastatic disease, you know, they're actually not sick from the cancer at all. Um, and, our, and that's where you're balancing up the side effects of the therapy versus um, the benefit. Of course, we want to shrink the cancer, but we also want to make sure the patient can tolerate the therapy. And if, as lines go on, that balance becomes more and more, um, more and more fine. And... Patients are they're, they're experts now. You know, third line in, fourth line in. I mean, if they've had early treatment as well, these are experts. So, you know, you've got to listen to the patient. If the patient says, "I don't want to lose my hair," "I don't want to die with no hair," you know, you've got to respect that. And um, and so I think that's quite different to you know meeting your you know patient for the first time who you're trying to talk about you know adjuvant chemotherapy, for example, or neoadjuvant, as Josh just mentioned. Um, your job is to educate them, whereas I think a patient who's been through many lines of therapy, they're probably educating you more. Um, look, sites of disease matter, you know, you know what. I think being honest about, you know, there's a 20% chance of this chemo working, for example, you know, and some people see those odds as great and others will go, you can't be serious. 
Um, and we all have risk benefit, you know, profiles we add to our life and, and patients do this as well. Um, so I think, look, you know, it's unfortunate that I work in a cancer stream where we do have a lot of therapies, but, um, you know, we don't always get to use them all. And for the right reasons, you know, treating someone, you know, very close to death is, is sometimes desperately what they want. Um, but you're not sure that that's always in their best interest. Um, being honest and, you know, being able to share, again, this is a comment I made before, your uncertainty, you know, I don't know whether this will work. And you look back at their prior therapy, if they've had really good responses to other lines of chemo, yeah, that's fantastic. If they've been resistant and you have just chopped through, you know, three lines very quickly, you know, your expectation of a further response is, is pretty low, unless you're really trying something very novel or you're sending them for a clinical trial. I don't think I answered that terribly well, Michael. Look, I think it's tough. Probably, probably you can see from my answer, I think it's really tough. Yeah, absolutely. And especially if, as you say, they're experts, they might also have, experts have might have expectations. Yep. And so a, a big part of it might be them actually asking you, which is something that I haven't actually experienced, why can't I have treatment X that I've seen on the internet? And it's it's very easy to for a her to negative patient who's asking you why can't I have TDXD? Well, it's obvious. But if if you have to be a little bit more, um, if you have to, I guess, explain it a little bit better if it's not that obvious. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, I mean, thanks to you know, you know, the community support for breast cancer out there, patients do often come and say, you know, I saw in the news, you know, X drug, and it it it. The frustrating thing, it may work, but it may not be available. It may be completely irrelevant because it's a different type of breast cancer. Or you might be like, oh, my goodness, I don't even know what they're talking about. You know, or it's some phase one data that they saw on the news and you're thinking, gee, I don't even know. So I think you've got to, you, I think you do have to give them the time. And even if it's even if it's a completely irrelevant drug for them, you need to walk them through why that might be so that they don't feel as though they've just been, you know, you know, dismissed. So, um, yeah. That's all. That, that's great. And I think there's a couple of points that I, I love that you just mentioned, Belinda. One of the things is patients that progress through multiple lines of therapy and the other being, I guess, the toxicity profile of these treatments. What do you find from a training pearl perspective and a bit of an education point? What's the, just from a basic chemotherapy management in, we can say early breast cancer, but any sort of breast cancer, what's the biggest toxicity that you find difficult to manage? Um. Well, I think I'll start with an easy one and I'll perhaps go to some others. So I think, look, we use a lot of taxanes in early breast cancer and um, peripheral neuropathy is extremely common. And we don't seem to be very good at knowing who gets it. I mean, certainly if you've got, you know, comorbidities that suggest you're at risk for it, but, you know, very few of our patients do and yet still up to 30% of our patients get this. And, of course, the problem of peripheral neuropathy is it can be permanent, you know, so you might cure their breast cancer but leave them with a permanent neuropathy. So that's something that, you know, we have been far more willing to truncate, give weeks off, maybe dose reduce. I mean, obviously we want to keep up dose intensity in the curative setting, but you do have to balance that with a potential permanent toxicity. And if you're out at, you know, week 10, 11 and 12 of paclitaxel, um, and your patient's dropping things, you know, I think very hard about whether or not it is worth giving those few extra doses. And again, if you're giving it in the neoadjuvant setting, you hopefully have some response information already, which might help drive that decision. I think there are other, you know, probably maybe not where you were heading, 
here, Josh, but weight gain is a big one. Um, weight gain is terrible for patients with breast cancer. You know, many of our patients are already overweight. You know, it's a risk factor for breast cancer. It's, a, it's, a, it's in Australian society. Um, and patients who, you know, we're really keen to get them exercising from the, da- from the day of their start or even before they start, um, you know, we're trying to get them to eat well. But it is hard to lose weight or to even maintain your weight on chemo. The steroids are there. Um, and certainly for our young women who are making at least, if not permanently, but temporarily menopausal, I think weight gain is a really, really tough one. You know, there are many things about being on chemo, you know, losing your hair and scalp cooling's great, doesn't work for everybody and not everyone can tolerate it. But I think weight gain is just one of those ones that I think, you know, particularly for this population of patients that we're treating is a tough one. And it's much, it's just so much harder to, to get off. So Oftentimes in that first consult, you've got so much to talk about that these are the these are the things that you know you know don't really come up. It's more you know oh this might affect your heart, although the risk is very low. You know febrile neutropenia, although again in breast cancer, you know the the risk of coming into hospital with FN now is really low. Thank goodness because we're getting better at giving these drugs and we've got more supportive therapies. Um, so you know they're they're probably some of the things. I mean, um, really late effects. Um, you know permanent menopause for patients you know effects on fertility these are obviously you know really important for young women and and i think just as a general comment about you know treating i say older ladies i mean you know 65 is not old but you know there is data now where we do want to think very hard about do they need this anthracycline because if they're you know over 65 if they've got hypertension or high cholesterol or family history they're already they're automatically in a category where that risk of um you know affecting their heart and their, their future uh, cardiac health is significant. So that's something that, you know, I do I do spend a bit of time on. You segued pretty much perfectly into my question there, Belinda, with the, with the um, note about the heart. Um, it's something that is really harped on about in, in um, you know, for us all the way back to BPTs. It was a, it was a BPT question our year. Um, the anthracycline, stereotypically, the toxicity is... Um, is irreversible, but I guess the other drugs that are very commonly used that can cause um, ejection fraction issues are the um, anti-HER2 drugs, trastuzumab and its its derivatives. Um, And this is something that I guess, uh, I think Josh Josh agrees, that we really haven't um, had a consensus. It's one of those, you know, you ask three oncologists, you'll get three different answers. In terms of monitoring, and I guess when to be worried, what to do about it, you know, monitoring is one thing, but I guess that leads to the, the logical question of what you do about it if you, especially if it's a young person, you do a repeat echo or a gated blood pool scan and you notice their ejection fraction has, has dropped significantly. Do you have any um, any wisdom about that? Yeah, so, I mean, fortunately, um, uh, one thing we have a lot of people to help. So, in fact, my PhD student is a cardio oncologist or an oncocardiologist. She's actually a cardiologist. And actually, there's going to be, you know, far more support, I hope, in the future. You know, we'll set up clinics if you haven't got them at your hospitals already for this kind of issue. Um, because, of course, IO brings cardiac issues. Um, I think, you know, for that particular example you bring, you know, her two positive patients who whose EF drops on treatment, you know, firstly, you've got to look at, are we going from a super therapeutic EF to a therapeutic EF? You know, they're going from 75% to 65% or, you know, were they borderline to begin with, maybe at 55% and then dropping under? That's far more significant in my eyes. Um, certainly, I do tend to repeat with an echo. So if they've had a gated heart pulse scan, I'd send them off for an echo just to see whether I can um, I can manoeuvre that number at all. Um, you know, again, look at where they are in their HER2 therapy 
look at what their risk is of this breast cancer because as you guys know the data for six months versus 12 months of trastuzumab you know there's a bunch of studies you know some are equivocal some are a little bit better with the 12 months some look about the same and if you've got a patient who you started treating um and you know their outcome from this breast cancer is going to be brilliant and they're getting certainly if they're past six months then you may at least decide to hold the trastuzumab um and you know potentially stop it permanently interesting though when you look at the data we don't stop it very much you know we often try and push through and just monitor and if you're worried about it you should be monitoring more often so we might do a kind of mid uh scan at, at six weeks instead of the three months and then of course we can utilize our agents like the ACE inhibitors and potentially beta blockers and once I start to do that you know I usually call my cardiology friend and say do you, do you mind seeing um this patient you know and and they're really interested in it I mean I think this is part of a it's kind of a branch out of cardiology that is getting a lot of people interested because they're seeing these patients you know 10 years later coming in for their you know their cats and saying oh you know Belinda gave you chemo 10 years ago oh but she doesn't see you anymore so um yeah yeah you do have to watch it I mean your heart's a pretty important organ <laughs> yes yeah, slightly uh, what just out of interest what's the What's the biggest drop in LDEF you've seen in the therapeutic setting? Obviously in the HER2 setting. Oh, look. Is there I, one that sticks out? I mean, I've seen what, someone go down to kind of 20% and, you know, and actually it was someone who wow. actually had no comorbidities at all and was fairly young and, you know, you know, excuse the pun, but your heart sinks. Um, so fortunately, you know, fortunately most of these are reversible. Um, but, uh, yeah. Yeah, that was certainly a big surprise because, you know, most of the patients I say, look, we monitor it, but your heart's going to be fine. We, we love puns on this show. So the more the, the, more the merrier, <laughs> really. Um, we did one last week on gastric cancer. We're talking about cross and I quite enjoyed using cross in every second sentence. Okay. I, think, I think Josh got about, uh, about 20 uses of cross puns. <laughs> and and they were all okay. terrible. Um, speaking of Elvia, <laughs> we actually have a patient at the moment, very similar situation, you know, the uh, young, well, no comorbidities, the left ventricular ejection fractions continuously kind of sliding and it's a very early breast cancer and it's HER2, so we've kind of got that cardiology involvement. So it's good to see even across sites it's quite similar. Branching, I guess, also maybe in the HER2 metastatic setting, and this might be a little bit of talk about liquid biopsies and rebiopsying. I saw in some of your research, I, w- I was going through... Uh, a little bit of your research, but I can't say I uh, understood everything that I saw, but there was a there was one publication which you were part of, which was talking about intertumoral heterogeneity as a driver of breast cancer progression. And I think this is a really fascinating area personally. And looking at, I guess my question is this, you've got a patient with, let's say it's a early HER2 positive breast cancer, maybe it's a metastatic HER2 positive breast cancer and they're not responding the way you want. When do you consider, hey, do we need to rebiopsy this person? Because is there a potential that maybe the histology's changed? Maybe they've transformed into a triple negative breast cancer. Maybe there's something that's been missed. What's your, I guess, your directive to kind of say, okay, we need to kind of keep digging? Yeah, I mean, we see this often. We see it not too often in the early setting, and we certainly do see it routinely in the metastatic setting. So we can perhaps deal with them slightly differently. But I guess one key thing is if you've got the opportunity to watch a cancer shrink or not or grow, so in that neoadjuvant setting, um, you know, you just absolutely have to repeat the receptors um, from on, on your excision. And, you know, obviously if you're not winning in the neoadjuvant space, then you may do a repeat biopsy because, of course, you've based your neoadjuvant decision 
and you know perhaps a couple of cores that said to you this is a you know luminal B breast cancer or a triple negative or in your example a HER2 positive I mean it's interesting the HER2 amplified breast cancers are pretty consistent so you can do any of these things in the metastatic setting and even you know as you progress through the metastatic setting you can lose HER2 gain HER2 obviously lose ER but probably the most common thing we see is losing ER. So in a in a series we looked at of ours, about a quarter of our patients um, changed their subtype across their metastatic story, whether that was at relapse or during the course of their um, progression on, you know, second, third, fourth line therapy. So we are very keen, as, as, as you know, to biopsy patients um, to get that information. I mean, you can get that information from a liquid biopsy, but at the moment that's not really routine care and it's certainly the turnaround for that. Um, is usually, at the moment at least, not enough to be able to um, inform your very next decision. Um, so always think about it. If, and especially if you've got a patient who you might see responding, you know, you know, we say, oh, if the drug works, it works everywhere. And then, of course, you use a drug and it's working well in the liver but not in the bone. You know, I think it's often worthwhile really thinking about that because we know that there's a lot of heterogeneity um, in breast cancer, both obviously across patients but within patients as well. Um, and, you know, sometimes that doesn't matter. I mean, if, if it's heterogeneous, but it responds to, you know, taxane, then fine. But if you're relying on just a HER2 therapy and you know that the cancers, you know, there are going to be HER2 negative and HER2 positive cells there, then you're going to need something else than just HER2 directed therapy. Um, so, and I do wonder whether the genomic assays, you know, something like the PAM50, you know, I mean, we, we don't even have these at the moment, at least, although that might be changing in the early setting for luminal disease. But it might be something that we can use um, in the metastatic setting to be able to better better inform our therapies because just because something's HER2 positive doesn't necessarily mean it's HER2 driven. And likewise, just because it's ER positive, it may in fact behave more like a triple negative. And I think we've seen that from work from, you know, many smarter people than me um, in publications in the last 10 years. You mentioned very briefly the um, the genomic testing and um, I guess some of the risk stratification tools that we have. Um, and for me personally, it's still quite confusing about using things like Oncotype DX in the early setting. Um, and I think you've, you've you've told me after a clinic, you know, you you'll inevitably do these because you're not sure, and then you'll get an intermediate risk result because the test effectively isn't sure. But do you, where do you see these sorts of risk stratification tools um, being used? In in uh, do you think they're going to become a more common uh, part of our practice, or do you think there's really no substitute for a clinician's intuition? Um, so. Look, speaking currently, you know, as of today in Australia, we don't have funded access to these. So there's many of them out there and you'll know them, Oncotypes 1, Endopredict, ProSigna, you know, Mammaprint. These are all um, genomic assays taking a section of the tumour, mushing it up and looking at a bunch of genes to work out. Did what your pathologists tell you marry with when you mash the genes up and look at oestrogen regulated signals and particularly proliferation and Oncotype is driven basically by those two things um do you get a different risk stratification result that would change your initial recommendation that's really the predominant way we use these and we have come a long way so you know with data from studies like taylor x the truth is you know most node negative patients don't need chemotherapy you know some do most don't i think there's some ambiguity about young women still although the question is did endocrine therapy need to be 
tamoxifen or should we have given them something stronger? Certainly, at least in our expander, we've seen in a node positive cohort for patients with that lower risk disease based on recurrent score, you can also get away without giving chemotherapy. And of course, the younger patients, you know, the message from our responder was everybody needs it. You know, my belief is not every premenopausal woman uh, needs chemotherapy. I just think we need better tests. We need better predictive tests. Um, these are predominantly prognostic tests. So where we are limited in Australia at the moment, and I think if I'm doing this podcast, you know, in six months, maybe, maybe it'll change, is they're not funded. So you've got to be judicious with using them. And I always say to patients, and this will not change, even if we do get them funded, is you've always got to give them a recommendation if you didn't do the test. Um, you've got to, because they're not available to everyone, and they are just another piece of information. I mean, I think just because they're worth, you know, three, four, five grand, you know, sometimes the bit of information that they give is not really going to be any better than putting together the tumour size, grade, nodal status, patients, comorbidities, and that discussion. So you do need to use them in conjunction with all the other information that you've got and a really good pathologist. Um, so, and of course, if they're funded, we will use them more. There is no doubt about it. We've seen that in the UK, we've seen it in the US, you know, um, because, you know, a huge passion of mine is sparing patients treatment that they don't need. And if these can do it, then we probably should use it more. And certainly, you know, if you give a lot of chemotherapy to ER positive disease, then you probably should be using these more because they will, they will, definitely reduce your chemotherapy prescribing. So um, I think I think what I would say about the test though is that, you know, and you know, I spent many, many of my time in London developing one as well, which you wouldn't be surprised is not commercially available. But it does make you realise that they are just a bunch of genes put together with a certain algorithm. And sometimes they are very, very driven by one thing or very, very driven by another. And uh, and, you know, when you don't know what's in that black box, you kind of, we almost trust it more. And I think cost has a lot to do with that. So, you know, you do have to know why you're ordering the test. Probably as the, as the best example for, for where we are in Australia is, um, when would I use them at the moment or when do I use them? I use them when it's going to change the decision. And that might be, I am truly on the fence and the patient at this stage can afford it. And I think, you know what, that extra bit of information probably will tip us over one way or the other. But actually, probably more times I use it is when the patient comes in and says, okay, I understand your recommendation, but is there any chance that this could be changed, you know? And that's probably where I use it, in fact, more. We're, we're trying to, I guess, align our, our, our ideas about where to go. So um, that's probably at this stage where, where I use the most. But look, as the data comes out, I mean, I think as we get, you know, perhaps even more sophisticated, um, you know, tests, hopefully not too expensive, um, you know, I, I suspect we will be using these, and I say generically more. And in fact, I actually think they have a role in HER2 positive disease as well. But, you know, certainly we're a long way from being up to offer them to patients in that sort of That's a great explanation, uh, Mikey. And when that was the thing I also get quite confused of because I think it's always really difficult to, when you've got a patient being like, look, you, you don't need chemo. or And I think putting it in context of using it with lots of, or your other clinical findings, other findings is super important. Um, one of the, you highlighted, Linda, you just give all these pearls when you're kind of explaining to our next questions. I, I really love that. Um, one of the things you were talking about is, oh, you know, ovarian suppression. You mentioned it briefly and kind of using hormone therapy, like whether that be tamoxifen, should they have tamoxifen or whatever it is. What is, I guess there's still a fair bit of, 
debate and discussion on extent, ex- how how long and how extensive you give ovarian suppression, how, how how long you give endocrine therapy, and then there's another question about the ovarian suppression and that of toxicities. Uh, one of the things I struggled with when I started is, and I know it's silly, you know, yes, premenopausal tamoxifen, postmenopausal you give aromatase inhibitor, you've got variations of the theme. But would you mind talking just about your rationale of sort of when you'd give ovarian suppression, you know, when you'd switch, kind of what things you look for? Because I think that's another quite a complex area of um, breast cancer management, especially for the, the beginner. Yeah, well, I can tell you it's still complex for me. Um, okay, good. <laughs> so, um, so I guess the way I think of endocrine therapy, and we might just for simplicity split out pre- and postmenopausal women. So I'll deal with postmenopausal first. I think it's maybe a little easier. So I still, we've got a plethora of drugs here. You can use aromatase inhibitors and you can also use tamoxifen. Tamoxifen works across the, you know, milieu of the, of the whether you're pre-peri or postmenopausal. So I go back to what's the risk of this breast cancer coming back? Why am I selecting an AI over tamoxifen for postmenopausal women? You know, we know there's a, you know, what we, we quote this magic 3% absolute benefit, you know, potentially no overall survival benefit. Um, so I really look at, is this a low risk breast cancer? Then I think the difference between those two agents is pro- pretty negligible. And then you're talking about which is which toxicities matter to the patient. You know, if you're an intermediate or high risk patient, and particularly if you've got a lobular breast cancer, then I will move towards really trying to encourage an AI. And I think being able to use bisphosphonates for postmenopausal women, you know, makes me relax a bit because then we can protect their bones. And of course, you know, we know that it does have some protective um, recurrence factor too. So that's postmenopausal women. Premenopausal women and, in fact, perimenopausal women are really tricky. So I guess when we think of ovarian function suppression, if we take away the use of gazerolin with chemotherapy for ovarian function to pre- protection to preserve fertility, because that's time, one time when we use it during chemo, but if we're really talking about what's the role of it being able to improve their survival, um, in a high-risk premenopausal patient, I will offer them ovarian function suppression. Oftentimes, these patients have had chemotherapy because they're high risk. So, but I will ask them to continue it, and um, and then I would elect if they can tolerate it to add an aromatase inhibitor in. But I think using tamoxifen and gazerolin is also a reasonable alternative. I think we've talked a lot about chemotherapy today, but I think chemo goes for six months and you're done. This stuff goes for years. So whilst we can talk about I give OFS and an AI to all my high-risk young women, how many of them actually can stay on it? Because the endocrine therapy that you want them to be on is the one that they actually take. It's actually no use for me to prescribe it if they can't actually take it. So I think the first few years is the most important. If you can get a patient um, in that high-risk early early setting who are premenopausal through a couple of years of OFS and AI, then if you need to back off the toxicity, you know, I think you have achieved something in that first few years. And I'll be really interested to look at the soft data for patients who needed to come off their OFS and AI early because of toxicity. Because I think if you've got profound estrogen suppression for a few years and your cancer is addicted to estrogen, like that should be enough, shouldn't it? You know, surely if the cells haven't seen estrogen for a few years, you know, they, they, you know, they'd be, have to be pretty stubborn and maybe, you know, endocrine resistant cells to be the one that survives. You know, so having said that, sure, it's easy for me to say five years is the go, but it's tough. Five years is tough. And if fertility is an issue for our young women, not everyone has five years to wait to be able to then decide, oh, you know, I want to get pregnant after you've, you know, treated me and told me I'm going to be, you know, likely cured from this breast cancer. So that's the other factor that I do 
keep in mind. Where OFS comes a bit harder is if you're treating someone, say, in their mid-40s uh, and you've given them chemotherapy because you feel that's appropriate, and then you're looking at, all right, well, if they're high risk enough for chemotherapy, you probably want to give them the best endocrine therapy. I think it's always hard because if someone's getting now closer to that magical 50, you know, maybe they're 46, 47, 48, um, and you've given them chemotherapy, the likelihood that you've rendered them menopausal is pretty high. And so OFS is not going to do anything there. And yet, of course, at the same time, you know, we all get nervous about giving an AI to that 48-year-old lady who had chemo without being able to know for sure that her ovaries are switched off. So I think that's a bit of a harder one. And using a switch strategy is something that we do often use. So we might start with TAM and once we're convinced they're permanently menopausal, we'll switch them over to an AI. There are some women where you just will want to get the AI in early. Um, and so you might use OFS. But, you know, you're looking at these ladies, unless they have their ovaries out, for having these injections once a month with the GP, you know, for years. And, um, you know, that, that can be quite tricky. Um, yeah, I don't know whether that helps. I think I think it's difficult. I think, you again, you've got to think of risk. You've got to think of what the patient's wishes are. What's their trajectory for this? And, you know, you've got to keep bringing them back because year one might go fine and then year two everything starts to, to fall apart. Yeah, that that's really true. I think also the quality of life aspect of going to your GP once a month in your, in your 40s and you might have young kids and you've got a full-time job, it, it all kind of it impacts it's it's uh it's a risk balance equation so that's really quite interesting that's a good uh take and those solidex injections this is something that i only realized when i saw one of them like they can be quite quite nasty it's it, i just conceptually conceptualized it as like an insulin injection one of those tiny needles but you know it's the it's the pellet and the massive needle and doing that once a month is it, no, it's quite hard i think you have to word up your patient when you start this and say oh we're going to put you on this injection that's going to protect i usually say look it's a bit more like an implant it's not like you know especially if they've had gcsf and they know what that's like i'm like no it's a bit of a bigger deal and in fact over covid i had quite a few patients doing it themselves I was like, that's pretty oh, good. I, I'm not sure I'd give myself gazerolin, but yeah. Yeah. Um, from one, I mean, very difficult, uh, um, I guess, consideration to another. And, and again, you mentioned it, Belinda. It's almost like you've read our, our list of questions. Um, but the, the question of fertility preservation, um, obviously, you know, the, the absolute heart sink patients are the, the really, really young women in their 20s, the, the triple negs, that sort of thing. Um, and you, the, the women who you really have no choice but to give obviously very cytotoxic, but also very ovarian toxic um, uh, chemotherapies uh, and obviously other, other therapies. What is your uh, approach to, I guess, the balance of long-term outcomes and giving these women, I guess, a chance to even have children in terms of survival versus sort of taking away or permanently damaging their ovaries? And, and what strategies do you have? Um, I mean, we know about um, OFS and, and how shutting down the ovaries protects or theoretically protects the fer- and preserves the f- fertility. But do you have um, strategies on, I guess, how to, how to better manage or how to and have that conversation with these women? Yeah, it's tough. And I think, um, again, that first visit, there's a lot to go through, but you cannot shy away from this discussion at that first visit. So, you know, um, let's argue you, you, we need chemotherapy here. So, um, and it's right, the gazerolin does offer some form of um, ovarian function suppression uh, and protection, I should say. And if you're treating someone in their 20s or early 30s, you know, you've got a pretty good chance, actually, that they're going to 
be able to recover and you know their periods will resume at some stage when you stop all their endocrine therapy should they need it that's actually quite different if you're treating someone in their late 30s you know who may just just as desperately want kids you know may in fact have just been at the time when they were looking into this maybe they've even you know started the IVF type thing and then sure enough they get a breast cancer and we know that actually the the risk of you know resumption of menses treating someone around the age of 40 substantially goes up with that risk of permanent menopause so i think the age of the patient is really key to try and you know help inform them what the chances are of this working to be able to protect their ovaries and a really important thing here and it's always tough because you know patients diagnosed with breast cancer i'm talking about chemotherapy and then i want to send them off to a fertility specialist and i want to do it asap i mean i had this situation just yesterday and because you're on one side saying we want to start treatment really soon especially if it was this kind of triple negative early setting the cancers in there and yet i want you to go off and you know bank some embryos or eggs because i don't know how you're going to feel in two three four years time and if a patient's even remotely interested in that discussion even if they come away from seeing the fertility specialist and say you know what it's not for me i didn't need to do it you can't go back you can't come back five years later and say do you know what i wish we'd done it um and i've certainly had patients who swear you know it's quite interesting actually i've had both cases where patients you know fertility has been really important we've done that and yet actually they've never used them for whatever reason they've not needed to or they've not wanted to and of course i've had the flip patient who says to me you know i've got two kids no way jose i'm interested in that sure enough you know five years later they come back with their third child and say oh look at this so i think you know we don't always know it's a you know it's a really stressful time to be diagnosed with breast cancer when you're young but if you don't have that conversation, you're doing your patient a disservice. Yeah, yeah it's um, yeah. There's no, there's no turning back. Time is there with with these big decisions in life. One, one other, I guess, aspect of breast cancer that we haven't touched on today is the BRCA testing mutations. Um, BRCA testing, the mutations, the implication it has to treatment, and also, I guess, future planning when it comes to mastectomies and oophorectomies. Linda, would you mind sort of chatting a bit about that and sort of your kind of, uh, I guess, outlook on BRCA mutation testing? Yeah, so germline testing, and I guess now we do an extended panel. So the vast majority of the germline breast cancer is BRCA1 and BRCA2, but there's other genes in there that we're now learning are becoming important and PALB2 is one of them. And so we still test in terms of a funded test. So being able to offer a patient to say, go and have this, you will not be charged at about a 10% threshold. So if they've got a 10% or greater risk based on age, tumour type, family history, they'll get funded BRCA panel testing. It takes maybe, depending on your institution, somewhere between six and eight weeks. And it potentially has an impact on not only treatment, um, because it may involve giving different drugs or additional drugs, uh, but obviously it has implications for the risk of further breast cancers and other cancers. I think where we've come, and this is definitely in my training lifetime, you know, no one ever paid for a test when I was um, going through because it was $3,000. Now it's about $450. And, you know, I certainly think, hopefully, again, you can play me this back in five years, that, you know, we're getting close to where this will be routine. So you get diagnosed of breast cancer and you also get offered germline testing. It will be funded because I think the more, the more you look, the more we will find. You know, we, we describe, you know, germline breast cancer being only really about 5% of breast cancer. But we know from data from the States and elsewhere that if, actually if you test everyone, that number goes up. So um, I do hope that this is something that, you know, we'll be able to offer more women. 
it, it also a negative test we focus on the positive test you know what are you going to do if it's positive but a negative test is actually uh it's quite a reassuring thing now that doesn't always take away risk you know if you've got a really strong family history with a negative like a panel i usually say well there's clearly something in that gene pool i just can't tell you what it is um but um yeah the the vast majority of our tests do come back negative but i think it still is important to think about them and the one thing i would say to you is that again there's a lot to do in that first first appointment you really need a few of these but if you are going to do it, you need to do it early because you don't want to be at the point where the patient's about to go for surgery, having had neoadjuvant, and yet someone's you know still waiting for the BRCA test. Because you may think the risk is less than ten percent; they may have paid for the test, but you will find some of those patients will turn out positive. We've all had that situation where I said, "Look, I don't think you've got one," and you do. So if you actually do go ahead with the test, try and get it done as early as possible, um, so that it can make you know, you can make the right decisions about surgery. You can make the right decisions about radiotherapy, for example. Um, yeah, so I, th I I truly do think, though, Josh, is that, you know, with time, this will become more and more standard. Um, I'm not saying necessarily we're going to do bigger and bigger panels, but I'm, I just think we'll be doing it a lot more often. Might come become like the uh, the EGFR and um, Alkin ros testing we do in lung cancer, where it's just sort of, oh, it's a lung cancer, let's send, let's, let's send it off for EGFR. Oh, it's a breast cancer, let's send it off for, for BRCA and PALB2. Um, Belinda, we've, we've taken up a lot of your time, so I, I will only ask one last question. And if you, I guess, if you had the ability to communicate and talk with yourself when you started oncology, um, when, when you, uh, when you, before you went to the Marsden, before you came to Melbourne, this, this strange and wonderful place, um, what, 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 if you could say one thing, if you could give yourself one little tidbit of advice, do you, and I'm putting you on the spot here, but um, what, what would, what would that be? I think one thing about oncology and this, I'm still learning this, is it's a pretty weird thing to do every day. And I think you've got to be pretty kind to yourself. Like, you know, and medicine is anyway, you know, when we, you know, we compare ourselves to our family or friends who have these careers where they go into the city and they, you know, work very hard, no doubt, but they go out for lunch and they go home and then the weekends off. You know, medicine's never fitted that. And there's a reason, I guess, why none of that might have bothered us. But then you go into a setting like oncology where, you know, you, you, you're not curing a lot of patients in some of these cancers. And even in breast cancer, you know, um, you're often dealing with young women. You're often dealing with these complex issues like fertility. Um, and, you know, even in older ladies who die from metastatic breast cancer, you know, that's a death that we, we, we would not have wanted to have. So I think you've got to be kind to yourself and you know you can I think the patients who get to me are not always the ones that I think you know like sometimes I fall apart with someone who you would have thought oh why would you get so upset about that so I think you just have to have that little extra bit of um I don't know kind of self-awareness and you know have people around you be the professional friends family whatever it is pets um hobbies reading something that allows you to just go there and realize that this is it's not easy it's not easy you know i think actually olivia newton john i think dying you know was really interesting i found that you know the day we found that she died and i walked into work and there's all these flowers at the front of the hospital which is beautiful and then i'm looking up at our ward thinking there's patients who we look after who die every day here and there's no flowers at the front of the hospital and i'm not saying it wasn't in, it was inappropriate it was appropriate but i just i think we do some pretty strange things pretty rewarding things but um yeah you do have to look after yourself and you know I, I i my mentors tell me that and uh i don't always do it very well but um 
yeah, we get a lot of support from each other and that's why it's a great, it's a, it's a great team career because there's a lot of people around you who are feeling the same. Belinda, that was, yeah, that's, that's very, uh, very, so very true about looking after yourself. What's your one, um, when you look at yourself and you try to reduce the risk of burnout, what's the one thing that you do that kind of gives you that grounding to go into work every day and deal with such a complex, although rewarding, but complex, I guess, specialty and profession? Um, so my life is pretty simple. Um, that <laughs> helps. Um, the other thing I've done in my career that I would not have done as a registrar advanced trainee, I wanted everything. I wanted everything instantly, all at once. And I think probably through the patience of my husband, I have, you know, kind of learned that, you know, not trying to achieve everything at once, being able to just give yourself some time to balance out how much research do you want to do? Do you want to do some private? Do you, you don't have to have it all worked out in the first few years of your consultant career. And, um, you know, looking after some precious time, if you can, weekends, planning holidays, um, you know, these are the things that for me, my family's, you know, really important. You know, and I have a bunch of friends that have absolutely no interest in medicine at all, and that is incredibly rewarding. So, yeah. Yeah, that's that's, that's really, really, really wise words. So we don't need to know everything we, we have to want to do with our lives right right this second. Belinda, I think from Michael and I, we just want to say thank you so very much for coming on our podcast today. I feel like it's been a mini condensed tutorial for someone with so much experience and not just medicine, but world experience and life experience to give us a understanding that these things do take time to learn and, you know, we're building on our knowledge base, but you've been just incredible. And thank you so much for coming on our podcast. Oh, well, thanks for having me. That was actually quite a lot of fun. And um, you've got to forget, remember, we learn from you guys too. Like, I mean, you know, Michael and I are on at the moment and Michael tells me things I, I didn't know at all, both in and outside of medicine. So, you know, it, we, it, we that's why we work in the places that we do because, uh, we, yeah, we, we learn a lot from everyone. So thanks for having me and um, good luck for the rest of them. Thank you so much, Belinda. appreciate it. Absolute tour de force. All right. Um, and on our episode coming up next, we will be talking about ovarian cancer. And for anyone who wants to know what Michael's, uh, yeah, I guess, uh, interesting facts are, they're called Michael's, uh, oh, Michael, what do I always say? Michael's fun facts. Michael's fun facts. <laughs> he, he has a, a million of them, so it's fantastic. And, and we look forward to seeing you then. <laughs> Goodbye. Bye. Bye.